Thank you, Julian, very much. Well, good morning to everyone. It is a pleasure to see all of you. I appreciate your prayers this morning. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best to be antisocial after church. Uh, so I'm not feeling well, but I uh, pray that the Lord will give grace today, sufficient for the hour as we open the, the word of life uh, and consider these matters that are related to our gratitude as we think about that, especially uh, this season of the year. So I would invite you please to turn to the book of Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Luke 17, 11, and I'll run through uh, verse 19. If you're able, I would invite you please to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 17, 11 through 19. Well, on the way to Jerusalem, he, that is Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. So we have a wondrous day fast approaching. A day when we have to be on guard against the sin of gluttony. Uh, uh, as we sit around our, in our homes or in the homes of friends, enjoying Thanksgiving dinner together and our time together. And most of us will enjoy a day of warmth and fullness in every sense of that word. You know, it is very easy, isn't it not, to get caught up in the warmth of the season and to give thanks. You know, many people do, you know, uh, in the, even in the secular world. It's used as an occasion to, at least to say thanks to kind of into the air, they're not necessarily who are they thanking, not really sure, but at least they want to encourage, people like to encourage a thankful attitude. But then, as I think we're all pretty well aware, the day after Thanksgiving, the gratitude for what we have is often lost in the mad rush to go out and acquire more. And the problem is even more significant when it comes to the redemption of your soul. For all too often, the coldness and ingratitude of our hearts concerning our salvation is evidenced by our seeking fulfillment in all kinds of substitutes. 
only to run away from the one who accomplished our deliverance. I would ask you this morning if you really understand the significance of being demonstrably grateful for your salvation. Jesus told his disciples in John 4, in verse 4, uh, right, it's this, uh, kind of the uh, a parallel passage to our reading here today, but it adds an additional detail. For there we read Jesus saying, I have to go through Samaria. He had some business to attend to there. And that involved the redemption of souls, both then and now. Jesus went to Samaria so that he might teach us something of that significance. I would submit to you today a lesson learned from this passage is that gratitude is the mark of a redeemed, delivered heart. And there is great need for your deliverance. We see that in verses 11 and 12. He's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Remember, what, what other business did he have in Samaria? It was an incident at a well, you might remember. And that was another part of the business there. But as he's going along here in this uh, kind of a, it wasn't really a DMZ between Samaria and Galilee, but as probably most of you are aware, there was not a lot of love lost between Samaritans and Jews. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds and really a lower, almost a lower life form. I mean, they just didn't want to be around them, didn't want to touch them. Um, those that were the more full of themselves would go all the way around Samaria rather than go through because they wouldn't want to be defiled even by walking through. So it's remarkable that Jesus, as a known teacher, would go through Samaria. And it's not surprising that he runs into these lepers. Because the lepers are outcasts of society. And they would uh, be looked upon, frowned upon with a great deal of disgust. And so go and even be driven out from their families and their homes. It's not surprising that they would congregate in a place like Samaria where uh, all the other uh, lower strata of society lived. But this discussion about the lepers, these, these ten lepers, they stood at a distance. Leprosy is something that throughout the Word of God often is used as an image of sin because of the nature of it. There is great need. These lepers have great need. I've just been reading through the book of Leviticus in my uh, devotions lately and went through Leviticus 13 and 14. And when you read through those chapters about what was required of them, they were, you know, like, okay, so I'm not feeling well today. But um, if I had leprosy, I would be required not to 
not to worry about washing my face and combing my hair and, and putting my best clothes on to try to put the best face on it. Lepers were commanded to dress in rags so that they would know, everyone would know that there was a problem there. Leprosy is a terrible disease. It's a disease that is thorough. It spreads fingers of decay into every part of the body. Eventually it leads to a very painful death. And in that day, lepers lived in terror, in squalor, and in isolation with no real hope of recovery. All they could do was hope and pray for a miraculous healing. Because nobody knew how to heal it. Nobody knew how to treat it. It was just kept in isolation. If by some miracle they found themselves in a healed condition, all that the priest could do was just come and examine them according to the standards that God lays out there in the book of Leviticus and say, yeah, you're clean, or no, you're not. That's all they could do. What an incredible, incredibly hopeless condition. There was no clear understanding of what caused it, of course, and that even added to the fear. Sin is much like that. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9, reminds us of the similar effects of sin on our hearts when the prophet says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We are indeed thoroughly and totally depraved. Every part of our being is touched by the leprosy of sin. And, there is, and we have no hope to cure it on our own. Nothing. And the law is very strict. That adds to the need for our deliverance. It's not just that the disease is bad, but what the law said had to be done, almost, when you read through Leviticus 13 and 14, it almost seems cruel to us. Because the law kept lepers outside. They could not engage in the life of their village and their homes and their families where they might otherwise find comfort. They had to be outside in the wilderness away from everybody else until they could prove their good health. And there was no lenience. The contagion of leprosy had to be kept out of the realm of the healthy. There's an application here for life in the church. And it too may seem harsh. But the fact is, is that the church, the visible church, cannot serve as a refuge for a person who is persistent in their sin. There are many that want to come and take part in the life of the church and try to find some comfort there in their misery, but without actually calling upon the God who ordained the church to truly redeem them, to truly heal them. The sin of unbelief, the sin of wicked practice, the sin of rebellion, the sin of, of, uh, of blaspheming or using God's name in vain, and on and on. And yet, many want to come to the church so they can have the warm, soothing waters, as they suspect, that might 
might, might make the sin feel a little bit better for a time. But without truly depending upon the Lord. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul would say in Romans chapter 7, coming under the hearing of the law, in fact, is, is almost even worse. You can imagine if a leper during this time would venture into a, a town to try to find food or some rags to wear or something else, how do you think he or she would be received? Uh, they wouldn't. Uh, people would cross on the side of the road. There might be um, the, the leaders of the church of the uh, town would come to that person and make sure that they left as quickly as possible. Because as that sin became obvious there in the midst, the law kicks in and there were things that had to be done. So Paul would say in Romans chapter 7 regarding his, the condition of his heart that, that uh, when the commandments came, sin revived and I died, he says. God's law is still very much in force and it's still very powerful. And when we look at what God says regarding our sins, all that we can, the only conclusion we can come to is that there is no remedy in us to fix this problem of sin. Because this law is strict and the world around us is heartless. Again, the world was not kind to the leper. Even without the provision of the law, those who were obviously in torment and need got no sympathy, only revulsion. They've got, they're walking around in rags, in, in, in filthy conditions, rotting flesh. This is not a pleasant picture. And nobody wanted to be around that. Nobody wanted to touch them lest they fall prey to the disease, the disease themselves. Leprosy too closely mirrors the spiritual condition of man for men to be accepting of it. And even so, in the same way, the sinner who admits his guilt before God of, in a condition, really, that is far worse than the physical illness of leprosy. If you go out and start talking about how you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you need to repent before a holy God, do you think the world is going to be your buddy? Some of you may have, during your, during your pilgrimage on the earth, uh, can, may have uh, a circle of friends that you once had that you no longer have. Because when you came to Christ, suddenly... You were a persona non grata. You may even know that that distance and that and the pain of rejection in your own families because of that. And when we look at ourselves in the mirror, sometimes we can just be revolted at looking at ourselves in the mirror. So the need for deliverance is huge. 
The leper's condition was hopeless. They were cast out. They got no help from anyone. And yet, in verse 13, when they see the Lord Jesus passing along as he, and as he enters the village and they see him, even the lepers in their isolation had heard of the Lord Jesus. How they recognized him is not said. Perhaps there were others walking along the way that uh, were talking about him and they overheard that that's who this was. But they knew that this was a person who could heal. And so they cry out. And verse 13's cry is most interesting. They lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now there is something remarkable about this passage that I, I hope to bring out to you both at this point and as we go along. It's, it's tempting for us to look at, and we're going to look at the guy who came and gave thanks. We're going to spend some time looking at him. But we, we have a tendency to look at the other nine and just write them off. But there's a lot that they do well. There's a lot that they do right. And a lot of what they do right are things that many of us do and many in the world do to try to address this problem, and particularly in coming to the Lord Jesus. But there's a, there, there is a, a, a definite line that they need to cross and they don't. They are so close to being made whole. And so many of the things that they say are right and proper things to say. And yet only one goes away whole. Why is that? I want you to have that in your mind as we go through and look at these verses. So let's look at this cry. This, this is a good cry, dear friends. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They are crying for out of desperation. The words of Jonah in Jonah chapter 2 as he's there uh, in the depths in the belly of the great fish. As he says, out of the depths I cry to you. If the lepers uh, uh, could be seen as those who are in the depths as well. Depths of despair, depths of hopelessness, depths of, of pain, depths of fear, depths of sorrow. And they are crying out in desperation. Remember, they are crying out to a Jewish rabbi, a known Jewish teacher and healer. These, are, these lepers know that in, in their, intellectually they know that no Jew is liable to even speak to them. Even though nine of them apparently, having been exiled out of Judea or Galilee, were roaming around in Samaria with this, other, with this one Samaritan guy. They were, nine of them were Jews, apparently. That's what it seems like from the text. But even so... 
to, to cry out this way is, is an act of desperation. Because most are not going to even give them the time of day. Most would go as far away from them as possible. So they are desperate. But they also notice, and this is where the cry gets good. They cry out of reverence. Not only did they have a recognition that they were lost, a recognition that they were in need, they recognized a master. They recognized someone with authority. They recognized that Jesus, at the very least, whether they thought of him as the Messiah or, or not, is not clear here, but they at least recognized that he had the power of God and was able to wield it effectively to heal other people. They all called him master. Take that into account. Matthew Henry made this comment here, and it's spot on. Those that expect help from Christ must take him for their master and be at his command. If he be master, he will be Jesus, a savior, and not otherwise. They ask not in particular to be cured of their leprosy. Did you notice that? But, Matthew Henry points out, what they cried was, have mercy on us. And it is enough to refer ourselves to the compassions of Christ, for they fail not. So far, so good. They are casting themselves on Christ's mercy, just asking Him to be kind to them. They cry out of reverence in the midst of their desperation. And I think that this is also a cry of hope. I mean, why cry out if you're not hopeful? Now, this may not be the kind of hope that we often think about in the Scriptures where it's a, really an eager expectation based upon something, not just a wishful thinking. This might be more in the wishful thinking category. But nonetheless, they are crying out in hope. Perhaps some of them, who knows what, the, what uh, occupations they had before, but perhaps some of them had the words of Jeremiah once again in their minds where the Lord says to his people, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says Yahweh, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. <coughs> the lepers had no future. They're crying out in, in the hopes that they might have a future. That they might live and be restored. And you think about a, a similar prayer, though not with leprosy, but in Mark chapter 10, when Bartimaeus, the blind man, is there on the side of the road in Jericho. He, on the other hand, had a little bit more of an informed prayer, a little bit more of a messianic hope when he cried out to David, uh, to uh, the Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He recognized that connection. And his hope was fulfilled. Not all, well, in a way, the hope of all ten lepers was fulfilled. The problem was, for nine of them, their hope didn't go far enough. Their hope was only about fixing a physical problem. Now, we've talked about the need of your deliverance and, 
and the crying out. Before we move on to think about how that deliverance was accomplished, I want you to think about your cry for deliverance from the leprosy of your sin. I'm not, I'm not thinking of, I'm not encouraging you to think, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer at such and such a, a rally or a meeting. I'm not talking about making a decision or anything like that. Because those don't really begin to, to touch what's going on here. To cry out for mercy means that you hold out nothing of your own as a foundation for being delivered. No decision of yours, no prayer you prayed, no church you went to, no any of that. To cry a cry that brings deliverance, it needs to be a cry that is completely selfless and completely humble before a most holy God. Because in sin, your situation is desperate. And you have no remedy apart from the miracle of deliverance that only God can do. So let's look at how the Lord accomplished the deliverance and what the nature of that deliverance was. When we look at verse 14 here. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Jesus, in his typical fashion, um, goes minimalist. He didn't uh, do his miracles with a lot of fanfare and bells and whistles and uh, smoke machines and fireworks and all those other things. He just says a word. And in this particular case, most interesting. He doesn't say, you are healed. Now go. He says, um, go and show yourself to the priest. Think about that for a minute. You don't go to the priest unless you're healed. There's absolutely no point in doing so. Because they'll just turn you away. He's looking at these ten guys. He doesn't ask them any, uh, any questions. He doesn't uh, see if any of them are worthy in his sight. None of them are. According to the law. Jesus accomplishes this miraculous healing strictly according to his good pleasure. Their faith at this point was not a prerequisite to healing. This is all Ephesians, as in Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, according to the good pleasure of his will. They were all healed as they went along. Now this command to go and see the priest really is, you could, the, the equivalent would be is, you're now healed. But they're standing outside of the village and it's like, okay, we're going to go see the priest. And as they go, the leprosy is gone. You know, many of us want to see before we believe. Jesus' command is believe and then you'll see. 
which goes contrary to the wisdom of the world. Again, to quote Matthew Henry, uh, those that expect Christ's favors must take them in his way and method. I thought of Naaman, that uh, military commander from Babylon, remember, who, uh, want, who, who has leprosy. And he wants to be healed. And he hears from the, the Jewish slave girl that's in his household that there's a prophet in Israel who can uh, bring about healing. And so he goes over to Israel with his entourage. He's got all of his gifts. He's got all these things. He wants to, he, he's looking for, after all, he's an important guy. He's looking for some fanfare. He's looking for some, some big thing. And Elijah doesn't even come out to see him. He sends his servant out to go, hey, you just go dip yourself in the Jordan River uh, seven times and it's done. And Naaman's all offended. You all familiar with the story? <gasps> Do not I have better rivers in Babylon that I could go dip in cleaner, better? Yeah, the Jordan's a muddy mud hole, slow, snake-moving thing. He would look at that and say, ugh, you know, this is, you really want... I'm, I'm already dirty enough. You want me to get in this dirty water and do this? And uh, finally, finally, uh, a servant of Naaman's talks some sense into him and says, you know, hey, if the Lord, uh, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Yeah. So just go do it. Naaman will have fine. So he goes and he does what he's supposed to do. And he's healed. And Naaman wanted to be healed according to what made sense to him. And we often want to be healed and restored in our souls according to what makes sense to us. If I just do certain things, if I have a history with the church, if I was taught this as a child, uh, if I read my Bible every day, if I pray diligently, if I do this, if I do that, if I do the other thing, yes, then God, I deserve your, your favor. But until then, I don't really deserve it, so I'm just going to keep mucking along in my own way. Instead of taking Christ at his word, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's not rocket science. Romans 9.16 makes it pretty clear. Apostle Paul says, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So this is, Jesus accomplishes his deliverance just out of his good pleasure. But there's also a measure of faith going on here. Very interesting. Um, the lepers quickly and apparently quickly and willingly complied with Christ's instruction. All ten of them. Apparently they didn't have any discussion about it or objection. They were like, okay. <laughs> they started to head, to head to the priests. So they had some recognition of who Christ was and that, all right, I'm believing that he can heal me. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for 
the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Let's stop there for a second and think about that. Are the lepers, all ten of them, are they abiding by the terms of the law? Yes. Are they, are they walking in obedience to, though I doubt that they recognize that he was the one who was the maker and crafter and author of the law. Nonetheless, they walked in obedience to the instructions of this man of God as they saw him, a rabbi, and they, they were striving to walk in obedience to the terms of the law. Yes, we've got to go see the priest. Did they have a measure of healing? Yes. They were all healed. So think about that. And then think of this caveat. Jesus' parable of the soils, about where the seed falls on the thorny soils and the stony ground. And a plant springs up upon hearing the gospel. And yet, when the cares of the world come along, the enticements, the other things that, that uh, the things that we want in this life, the benefits, the outward, the outward cleansing, the outward change of life, all of that is insufficient because there's no root. And it's at this point that we start to see that while the ten, all ten lepers did well in, in a number of things, nine of them fell fatally short of wholeness. But Jesus looks, expects them to walk in obedience to him, and they do. So there's part of that deliverance there. And there's also this deliverance is accomplished according to the law. I referred earlier to Leviticus 13 and 14. Um, again, Matthew Henry is great on this passage. We may expect God to meet us with mercy when we are found in the way of duty. Go attend upon instituted ordinances. Go and pray and read the scriptures. God, show thyself. Go, show thyself to the priests. Go and open thy case to a faithful minister. And though the means will not heal thee of themselves, God will heal thee in the diligent use of those means. There's a reason why... Uh, the, there's a reason behind the saying that there's no, salva uh, there's no salvation outside the church. And the reason for that is because this is where the word is, where the sacraments are, the means of grace, where, where the things of God are lifted up and proclaimed and uh, upheld. Now, Jesus could have said, could he not? Forget the priests. I'm the God of heaven. We're going to skip the middleman here, and I'm declaring you clean, and it's done. And Jesus could have been perfectly within his rights to do that, but he does not. And this ought to be a sobering lesson for us. There are many in this world that want to be delivered, but they want nothing to do with the institution of the church. <laughs> 
And in many cases, I can understand why. Because in the visible church, as I think most of us are aware, there are abuses because of sinful people, misuse their office, hypocrisy is rife, And yet this is the institution that God himself has established. And it is not for us to set it aside. If we do, we do so to our own peril. Jesus took care that the demands of the law were met and sends them to the priest for confirmation of the healing. He shows honor to the ordinances that he himself had established. Not only that, he, think about this. He gave the priests opportunity to glorify God. And, to, and for them to wonder, how did all these guys get healed all at once? What just happened here? So for the sake of testimony, Jesus also follows through on his own law. And doesn't set it aside. So let us not set things aside just because they're inconvenient for us or because we see problems in human institution, uh, the human practice of those institutions that Christ has ordained. The Lord Jesus uses the means that he's given, his word, the sacraments, prayer, discipline, all of those things. So Christ has accomplished this as they've cried out in, in hope, he accomplishes their healing. But now things really start to come into focus regarding the nature. So far, all we've seen of the lepers is their physical condition and their emotional state. Now we're going to see what's really going on in the heart, and this is where the rubber meets the road. Verses 15 and 16. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Now it's hard to you know, put our, well it's impossible really, to put our, uh, to lay a finger on what exactly the nine Jewish guys were thinking. But if they're true to form, from what we see uh, uh, many among uh, the, the Jews at that time in their response uh, to the Lord, it's likely that they were intent upon the requirements of the law. And I'm pretty sure, it's an educated guess, but I think... I can say with some certainty that they would have assumed that their healing came about because of their obedience. And more than that, it was their due as God's chosen people. They took of God's favor in many ways, like a greedy child will just take the things his parents lovingly and sacrificially give them and just take it because they think they're owed it. And I would not be surprised, 
I don't mean that they were ugly about it or anything, but I mean that their heart really, that, that they had an entitlement attitude to this healing. The dangers of the entitlement mentality are laid out very clearly in Hebrews chapter 6. You might want to turn there. Um, I'd like you to run your eyes over this passage. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is a challenging passage, controversial in some circles. But as you read on later, you come to understand that what is talking about uh, what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here is not someone losing their salvation, but of people who were only experiencing the outward benefits and blessings of it, but were never truly redeemed. So it's not about losing something. It's about the veneer coming off and the real state of the heart being seen, but held under greater responsibility because they had experienced all those blessings. I hope and pray that some time before these nine lepers actually died, that they turned to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Lord. Not just resting in the fact that, boy, we got healed from leprosy. Isn't that great? We're good to go now. There are many who come into the church looking for relief from sorrow, looking for relief from despair and hopelessness. And in the quiet and the peace and the order, they find some rest. And they, 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 they blend in. They, they wish to, to rejoice in the fellowship and, and be accepted and have all of those things that make our lives, yes, better and more joyful. But that's not redemption. It's just experiencing the outer blessings. And if we turn away from it, at some point down the road, we're held even more culpable to the point of not of, of repentance, which is a gift of God, no longer being available to us as God seals us in our condemnation, Romans chapter 1. How do you respond to your deliverance? Well, the sinful heart is ungrateful. The sinful heart feels entitled that somehow God owes us something. We may not be so crass as to put it in those terms, but we will try to come to him and say, well, I did this and I did that and I did the other thing, like the rich young rulers. I kept all these things from my youth. I did this, that, and the other thing. And yet... We're still holding on to the idol of our own uh, making in our hearts. A sinful heart is ungrateful. Um, and if you want to be clever about it in your notes, you could say the sin-full heart. 
When our hearts are full of sin, we're not grateful to God. John Calvin said this, it is too common a disease that when we are urged by strong necessity and when the Lord himself prompts us by a secret moving of the Spirit, we seek God. So in other words, when we're in trouble, we go after, uh, we want to find God. But when we have obtained our wishes, ungrateful forgetfulness swallows up that feeling of piety. Poverty and hunger beget faith, but abundance kills it. They were, will, they were more than willing to cry out to God when they perceived their need. But when God granted them the blessing, thence taking away every excuse, they walked away without gratitude or thankfulness or praising God, but thinking, yes, I've obeyed, therefore I am healed. On the other hand, the sunful heart is grateful. Gratitude is the opposite of covetousness. Gratitude is the destroyer of bitterness. Gratitude is the epitome of selflessness. And you cannot be saved apart from gratitude. Let me say that again. You may not have heard it stated that way in the past. You cannot be saved without gratitude in your heart. Because the moment that you think you're entitled to something, you're no longer trusting in the gospel, you're trusting in yourself. And there's no salvation in ourselves. Romans 7, Paul expresses the attitude that we ought to have uh, perfectly. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God, he says, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Take a look at Psalm 105, if you will. The first five verses read this way. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek Yahweh rejoice. Seek Yahweh in His strength. Seek His, pray, his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments he uttered. This ought to be the song of the redeemed. When the Samaritan returns, yes, he bows at Jesus' feet in gratitude and thankfulness. It's not really clear here if he's actually worshiping Jesus as God. The way that it's stated here, I think maybe not. Not, maybe his understanding isn't that full yet. But his understanding is enough to know that this came from God. And so he returns praising God and giving thanks to the Lord Jesus, who is God's servant. At least from that man's perspective, that may be as far as it went with him. 
And I love that. Because as we see in just a, a few sentences later, Jesus said, you know, your faith has made you well. Your salvation is not dependent upon your perfect knowledge of who God is. Aren't you glad? Because none of us understand God fully. If our salvation was based upon our perfect understanding, then it truly would be a salvation that was of works. The Lord Jesus makes this man well inside and out as he responds in a faith that to the extent of his knowledge, to the extent of his understanding, he gives glory to God and he's restored. It's a beautiful picture. But gratitude is at the heart of this whole thing. We've looked at this deliverance and the need for it and how we cry out for it how it's accomplished. We've, we've got before us the standard of what our response should be. And for us to be able to say, where, where am I? Am I grateful? Or am I entitled? And as you consider all those things, we come to understand then ultimately what truly is the depth of deliverance that these men experienced. When we look at verses 17 through 19, once again, there in, the, in Luke's gospel. Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner, which is, this is not the only time that a Samaritan figures prominently in a parable or a teaching of the Lord Jesus or in, the, in, in ministry, where he reaches out to those that are despised by the, the intellectual and religious elite and reaches out to them with the gospel. And in many cases, their actions are lifted up as models that the, the Jews that were so proud of their, their purity and all of that uh, of lineage and whatnot um, were not practicing at all. But let's get back to the measure of faith here again. Again, all were physically healed, but only one was made whole. In other words, those nine got a reward. Kind of like the, the, the Pharisee that stands on the street corner and prays about how wonderful he is. And about how much he deserves God's favor. He gets his reward. And that's everybody. Oh, what a guy. His reward is in this life only. The publican on the other hand. No reward of men. Would look to, be looked upon with, with contempt. Here's this guy. He's tax collector. Well, low life anyway, and now he's 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 acting all sorry. What you know? What a loser! And yet, when he got up, he went to his house justified, not the other. Yes, 
You all clean up very nicely. When you come into church and uh, you're known as a faithful church goer, you're known as, a, as an upstanding citizen, you're known as whatever, and you look upon that as evidence of deliverance, well, it's, it's true that when we're delivered and we're living before the Lord that hopefully we will clean up a bit and we will walk properly and righteously before the Lord and all of those things. But if that's all it is, you get the, the, the pats on the back and the attaboys and the admiration of those around you. Good for you. You've got your reward. But it's in this life only. And it can't satisfy. Only one had an eternal reward. As Jesus would say in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul acknowledges those folks out there that are well aware that this world, uh, that there's something going on in this world. That this world is bigger than they are. And yet, rather than seeking out the God who made it, they don't glorify God, Paul says in Romans 1. Neither were they thankful. But then they go on to erect uh, their own own gods, uh, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so they're sealed in their rebellion and sin. Again, to quote John Calvin, if that transitory faith which wanted a living root and produced nothing more than the the blade and the leaf, if that was honored by God with a remarkable effect, being healed physically, how much more valuable is the reward that awaits our faith if it is sincerely and permanently fixed on God? It is faith alone that sanctifies the gifts of God to us so that they become pure and united to the lawful use of them contribute to our salvation. Just going through the motions in the church is not enough, is it? Because if you do that in the expectation that if I just do this well enough, God will receive me, then it's clear that it's not a faith. But you're holding on to your own ability. And that is the path of death. And you may know some of God's blessings in this life. But there truly is more to come for the one whose gratitude demonstrates the reality of his or her faith. So Dr. Bob Jones uh, Sr. used to say, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. And that's a good thought. Something we ought to consider. Because truly gratitude for our deliverance, for our deliverance by God, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That gratitude is the mark of a redeemed heart.
Have you lost your amazement at God's deliverance and goodness? Do you contaminate the cure by your ingratitude? Your gratitude, or the lack of it, demonstrates the condition of your heart. I echo the question that the Lord Jesus asks in this passage. Where are the nine? Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for your holy word. And for how it pierces our hearts. Laying bare the reality of what is there. Lord, let us be people who walk in gratitude, recognizing that we deserve nothing, that all we can do is cry out for your mercy. And, and as we cry out, we may walk forward in the paths that you have ordained to be restored, not just in our physical life, but Lord, for eternity in our, in our spiritual life. Help us to walk with thankfulness day in, day out, moment by moment for the life that you give us, the blessings that you pour out upon us, for the Savior that you appointed for us. And Lord, let us rest in him alone. For he alone has the words of life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.